Hello and welcome to the She Research Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Diego Silva. Before introducing our guest, I want to acknowledge that we're recording on the unceded territory of the Gadigal people of the Anora Nation. This is and will continue to be Aboriginal land. I want to pay my respects to those who have and continue to care for country. Today I'm joined by none other than Supriya Subramani, lecturer in bioethics here at Sydney Health Ethics, to discuss her paper uh, that she's co-written with Nicola Biller Adorno, Revisiting Respect for Persons, Conceptual Analysis and Implications for Clinical Practice. And we can find this in the Journal of Medicine, Healthcare, and Philosophy. We'll have this paper linked in the actual podcast that you're listening to right now. Supriya, welcome. Thank you, Diego. This is really a pleasure talking to you, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. So just to get us started, Supriya, um, hoping you can provide us with a summary of your paper. So to give you a quick summary, I'm trying to understand this is a paper which I wrote with Nicola, as Diego was suggesting, which develops from my earlier works on micro inequities and moral habitus. Um, so what it means is, of course, as with the conversation, I'm happy to go more closer or critically into these concepts. Uh, but this paper is basically trying to get an understanding of what respect means, especially from an experiential point of view and what's its implications for clinical practice. Uh, within the larger bioethics discipline. And most of the discussions within respect for autonomy and respect for persons is what is acknowledged um, within the mainstream bioethics debates. Um, so the key question which one if wants to read and look in closer is about behaviors play a huge role in the understanding of attitude of respect for persons. Yeah. So what what's the argument that you guys make? What, what are your conclusions in the paper, and you mentioned this idea of micro-inequities or inequalities. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and how that functions within what you're arguing for? Great. Uh, thanks for that question, because um, micro-inequities is something which I've been working on for a while based on my doctoral work, uh, which I did in India, in southern part of India, it's Chennai. I did an ethnographic research in two hospitals. One is a government hospital and a private hospital. And when I started doing research on informed consent, which was very much, uh, you know, the concept which everyone has done research, there's so much of uh, publications, thousands and thousands. So I did take this concept to look through within Indian context, what does it mean and how do we understand, not just from the clinical practice point of view, but also from the legal point of view. And I was looking at taken for granted notion of informed consent, basically, and the more I continue to do my field work, I realize most of the discussion when we are talking about informed consent is about you know the ethical value is autonomy. So autonomous decision is one of the key focus when we talk about informed consent. But the key question which hit me through when I was doing my field work, when I was talking to patients and family members in two different hospital settings, as I said, is how when a person is not even respected, I mean, the sense of moral recognition, like if I don't even see you as a person, and in that clinical interactions or within that particular social interaction, if I don't even acknowledge you with my embodied experience, you know, showing you the due respect which I need to give through the recognizing you as a person, how do I even think and talk about decision-making as a, or a capacity arguments. So I'm not saying these two are two different things, but I'm, what I would argue in my earlier works and even in this paper with along with Nikolai is that respect for autonomy is not just enough. We need to also look at the larger experiential aspect of how it is practiced within 
the everyday clinical encounters. And that's a switch. And in order to do that, what I was looking at is looking at disrespect. So while we are talking about respect for persons, looking through the lens of disrespect is what I was trying to argue and push for. And the concept which helped me is micro inequities. And what is micro inequities? Micro inequities in a simplest sense, if I, I borrowed from organizational behavior and feminist scholarship around that. And uh, what they try to look is most of the scholars, it's a subtle and it's a small and subtle harms, if I want to put it as little acts of disrespect, which sometimes is like, for example, if you're not doing an eye contact or if you are just silent when I'm asking you questions, I can't pick a fight over that with you. Like, hey, why did you not this? I mean, you know, the, you, you constantly keep questioning because a person who is experiencing this micro inequities uh, is always, wait, is it happening because of my background? Is it because of my gender? Is it because I belong to a certain minority group? So there's a question of, is it happening because of this or that, the intersectional factors? But at the same time, we also worry people who are at the receiving end wonder, is it because, is it intentional? A person, is it targeting me because I belong to a certain marginalized community? And then the third uh, characteristics of micro inequities, which some of the scholars say it's always intentional or it's because of implicit bias. What I would argue in my earlier paper and in upcoming paper, which I'm also working on, is what is the moral wrong of that argument which I'm trying to build is, the micro inequities is, even though it can be unintentional or uh, not targeted intentionally in that sense, but it becomes normalized, both by the, I mean, if I want to use the word perpetrators or victims in both ways. Uh, it's a strong terminology, but I still see because of the power asymmetry, I still use these terms. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a doctor who is from upper class or upper caste or a dominant ethnic group member who belong to, who is talking to a person who is from marginalized community, let's say a woman from a lower caste community. If a person is talking who is teasing and, you know, like n not really acknowledging their worthiness uh, as a person, that is their disrespect through this micro inequities, like oh, maybe I roll or not even do an eye contact, let's say. The person who is at receiving end feels, wait, this has happened to me because I'm marginalized community and this is not like once or twice, it's a pattern. It's a his because of the historical context or the, uh, the marginalized community have this experience, you recognize that pattern, but you don't see it as that, oh, it's unintentional. You see, okay, it is, I am normalized. I'm aware of this, but I don't pick a fight right now at this time. So that's how the micro inequities play out. and. Especially in hospital settings, it plays out so strongly. And that goes back to the question of how we as people in power or people who don't have power in that particular context navigate and negotiate that particular clinical clinical encounters in hospital settings is a very um, interesting dynamics. And that plays out very directly to the how a person feels respected or disrespected. And because of it becomes normalized or not, is a big push towards, um, not necessarily we need to always talk about outright discrimination or outright uh, any kind of uh, overt um, indignity situations or behaviors, but these subtle and small harms are also, which adds a, like a cumulative effect, of course. So that's something is what I would like to draw, you know, uh, when we are talking about micro inequities. Did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I want to pick up on this idea of perception in a second. But before that, I'm actually curious as to 
how you came across this as a topic of research in the first place, both for your doctoral and postdoctoral research. And, and now, you know, we, we hear a lot about discrimination and usually we think about it in its worst forms, which we ought to. And we think about it sort of in a binary way. And one of the things I like about your work is that you point out the degrees and the sort of the continuum of and what this means for bioethics. So I was hoping you could just tell us a little bit about how did you get to this question in the first place? Great, thank you. So to answer that, I think I would like to share my personal stories about it, actually. Um, because, I mean, I my identity is a bit very difficult within the Indian context, but if I want to position myself, I belong to a lower caste yeah, identity person, uh, and my dad is, it's a hill tribe community. So, uh, and also within Indian context, the questions around indigenous, who is indigenous is also very much question. And my dad belongs to that community, which within the larger caste dynamics in India has been playing out, okay, they don't belong to a indigenous tribe, but they belong to a other backward community, which I find, I know listeners may not be able to comprehend in these uh, uh, the caste questions or the identity questions within the particular place where I come from. But to give you a quick overview, I belong to a lower caste community, as simple as it is. That means the discrimination I have experienced because of my caste identity, but also because of my, of course, gender and then colorism in India, especially in the southern part of my place where I come from, has been like lived reality for me. And that has always been there, but I never had the vocabulary. Like when I was growing up and as I was in, yeah, even during my PhD too, I couldn't really comprehend certain things which was happening for me. As I was reading certain feminist scholarship, that's when I started getting this vocabulary, right? And then this experience of micro inequities has happened to me, but uh, at the same time, it has been outright, and I have been witnessing also. It's not just happening to me, but I have been witnessing, and I have witnessed so many encounters. Of course, the larger discrimination practices, like caste discrimination outright, but also the subtle ways it becomes normalized. Um, so that's something which I was aware, but I never knew this is what micro inequities is, right? Because I was not exposed to these concepts. But uh, when I started doing my research in PhD in India, in, it's one of the institution which I did, was it's an elite institution in India. And uh, that makes it much more interesting now if I think about it, because um, the way we capture the practices, you are much more critically reflecting on how this plays out as a social researcher within academia, but also when you go out, whether you meet um, a bureaucratic institutions like government offices and health, hospital settings is also a larger institution in itself. So when I started doing my field work, whatever I was familiar with, so many years of lived experiences, made me, when I started witnessing within the hospital settings, as I was talking, like when a patient uh, is tailing behind, I think in my works, which I use this example very often, is a patient or a uh, you know caretaker who is tailing behind a person who is powerful, usually the doctor or nurse, which is like a common sight. Because people in power who just keep walking in front of you and the people who are not ne necessarily have a power enough, you, you know, you tail behind them. And uh, one of the patient, um, care the caretaker, you know, it uh, talks about it. I mean, these people don't even stop and talk to me. They don't even stop, turn, and so it is so embodied, right? I mean, and this experience has happened so many times in my life. 
And when I was reading, I'm, as again, I'm an interdisciplinary scholar, I'm more curious with concepts happening, um, uh, you know, uh, the concepts which are at different, uh, you know, scholarship. So when I was reading somehow about discrimination and implicit bias, I came across micro inequities within the organizational behavior and feminist scholarship on microaggressions. But then I did not want to use microaggressions because microaggression is one part of the larger umbrella of micro inequities in my the way I would see it as. And that's a, that's how I started looking into micro inequities. And also to an extent of many times when we talk about outright discrimination, it's easier to, uh, because you have very clear thought process and people give you more weightage as you also rightly pointed out. But when it is a subtle ways it is happening, that's worse I feel. Uh, because you don't even have a sense of uh, how do I make sense for myself. So the question of it's like, you know, a person can feel much more epistemically we end up questioning everything about ourselves, about is it happening because of my inability to not handle this situation or is it, has it ever happened in this situation? So it's both my personal experiences, but at the same time as a researcher going into the field, the field which I'm very much familiar with and the, and in my other works in non-methodology in one of the paper on practicing reflexivity, I talk about how my personal stories has influenced my own methodology and the theory construction within when, we, when I make the case in my papers on respect. So these personal experiences draws my attention towards the way we capture the lived experiences and at the same time, um, I, I think it is not much discussed in bioethics. While many feminist scholars do talk about power, right? Power, vulnerability, and um, the way the disrespect has been acknowledged. It, it certainly scholars have worked, but the way it has to be unpacked and also demonstrating how it happens with you know, ethnographic details or the lived experiences and narratives, I felt it was lacking. And that's where I think this micro inequities and also the other concept of moral habitus, that is how bodily dispositions are normalized. I mean, the normalization part, right? It's so much like we all know how to navigate a particular institutions or the certain uh, interactions, but it is so much part of historical socialization part and within hospital settings, hidden curriculum. Doctors uh, and like, you know, patients, nurses, everyone we pick up and we play a certain role, like, most of the times we patients play a role of passive patients, right? And the moment you want to deviate that, you're questioned again. How dare you question my authority? So these these things play out very strongly. And, and I would think in my work, I want to also look at the agency and structure divide, which usually the sociology as a discipline or anthropology as a discipline or philosophy, the way we try to look through, I did not want to see this as a dichotomous thing, but it both draws our attention to how um, we as humans, um, social beings, of course, we constantly evaluate each other. And this, the way we evaluate is always sometimes explicit. Uh, going back to the, the one we were talking about perception, we constantly, are in, we perceive each other um, in a sense of our own understanding of how to be good, how to be bad, but wait, did I do something wrong? So we that's what I mean, like we are constantly evaluating each other and we also try to see whether it should be good or bad is also part of this process and micro inequity is something which we need to be aware, I feel, especially people in power, that is, let's say, healthcare professionals, um, because the chances of being discriminated or people experiencing disrespected within marginalized communities, much more harm-inducing, yeah. 
So one of the things that about your scholarship in general that's kind of stood out to me, and, and it's in this paper as well. So you give sort of very practical examples, like the, the tailing example of the patient walking behind the healthcare worker. So much of the work that you do is about inhabitation, or I'm not even sure that's a word, but sort of inhabiting a space or a place and the role of physicality and location. I was hoping or I was wondering what you were think about bioethics and bioethics concepts and how we do or we don't think about space and place and embodiment. And what does that mean then for sort of broader bioethics scholarship? Right. This is something which I have been thinking about for a while. I mean, very recently, because uh, in my postdoctoral work, I'm I'm doing a project. I mean, which which I'm still continuing on immigrants' healthcare experiences, and use phenomenological method, basically phenomenological analysis, and embodiment within when we look at phenomenological understanding is very central. And um, so, even though in my earlier work on micro inequities, I do talk about stereotyping and how bodily disposition is very important, but I never unpack in my earlier papers what's embodiment and how it plays a role for ethics. And my current work and my future work is slowly, you know, trying to head towards how do we unpack and what it means. Why embodiment matters to ethics is a bigger question, which I'm also thinking through. And for now, I mean, the way I'm thinking is the dichotomy of reason versus emotion, body versus mind, which, of course, we know even many bioethics scholars do acknowledge this. But when we are talking about it, especially in the ethical theory and ethical arguments, we don't directly address it. And one, for example, when I, I mean, in another one of my project on breastfeeding, I mean, I keep, because this is one of my pet project in itself, and I keep looking how breastfeeding discussion in public health interventions, whenever the public health interventions are planned, they forget that, I mean, at least the way when I'm looking at the RCTs, the number of RCTs, you know, looking through it, feminist scholarship so much, they talk about maternal autonomy and lived experiences, but public health interventions or public health professionals, when they're planning these interventions, if they acknowledge the maternal autonomy is important to value autonomy, let's say the ethical value of autonomy, they have to listen to the lived experiences. And embodiment is part and parcel of that, right? Because the way a person, um, lives and situates the body and engages oneself is is of course the subjective experiences but the subjective is not like we, we can't say it's relativist understanding again going back to the larger ethical arguments we always is absolute versus relativist this we end up in this kind of conversation but in our everyday life we don't do that and what it means for bioethics conversation is the moment we embrace or acknowledge embodiment is part of ethical being and as a evaluative persons, I think that contributes so hugely to the way we think of ethical values and principles and also of course its implications to both public health ethics or to the larger mainstream medical ethics conversations too. For example, if I feel ashamed or when I feel humiliated with because of let's say a micro inequity or even a outright discrimination when I feel that plays a huge role on how I question myself and because it certainly questions my self-respect. And I and it makes me think about how do I 
when I go out again, like today I experienced shame or humiliation from X person. When I go back to another um, uh, next day to an office or to a healthy care institution, of course that my past experience of feeling ashamed and humiliation plays a huge role on how I act, or how I behave, or how I communicate, right? And this is something again, which feeds back to how even healthcare professionals experience these emotions. So much of my psychological studies clearly shows that. But at the same time, how do we make sure we bridge that within the ethical theory and the discussion within ethical values is not yet flushed out, I feel. There are scholars, phenomenologists who do talk about this, but how much it is given um, emphasis or the way we, uh, you know, use it um, to talk about larger mainstream bioethics conversation is yet to be done very much, I feel. Hopefully I'll contribute more. I mean, so far I still feel like I've not done a good job of unpacking it. Hopefully in future I'll keep doing this unpacking more clearly. Yeah, I think, I think you're well on your way uh, in terms of unpacking these very complex ideas. There's a couple of things from the actual paper that I want to kind of draw attention uh, to our listeners and sort of get a little bit more uh, details from you and kind of some more thought. One of the things you do in your paper is you, you talk about how doctors and healthcare workers, that it, it's not just about having the attitude of respect towards their patients, so, you know, the intention to act in a, in a way that's respectful, but that they should actually behave in a way that is respectful of patients, and particularly given existing norms in the locations where they're practicing. So going back to this thing that you mentioned a moment ago about the absolute, the relative, the universal and the relative, one of the things that you and, and, and Nicola talk about in your paper is precisely this idea of instantiations of universals in that the instantiation of respect, behaving in a respectful way, is sort of taking seriously these social norms that exist. So you give the examples uh, of various sorts um, about how even things like teasing a patient, which may seem innocuous at first, can be disrespectful, again, sort of internalized. And I guess when I was reading this, the question that came up for me is, what are the limits of what we can expect from doctors and healthcare workers? Um, Maybe another way of putting it is like, to what extent can we hold doctors responsible for how someone interprets, experiences, perceives an interaction as respectful or disrespectful? Yeah, this is a very complicated question, right? I mean, uh, this is something which, I mean, basically this hits to the question of whether the person intended the intentionality uh, versus the perception. Because when I witness uh, two individuals who are just standing and shaking their hands and I might interpret that as, wait, are they really shaking? Are they angry? I mean, because the way I perceive their body language in itself. So going to your question of how, what are the limitations, right? I mean, how much the doctors uh, should think about, did they mean it, did they intend? I mean, if the person has misinterpreted. The way I would put it more based on my understanding or my learning over the last few years is about within the particular social, context and also given the history of marginalization, history of how people who are from uh, who are from vulnerable socioeconomic background community who have been experienced in discrimination, when we listen to the, the narratives and experiences, 
these these experiences, like as I describe in all the works which I do show, is like it's not actually too much to ask kind of a question it comes across. But then for a doctor, wait, I mean, I didn't intend to do this. They missing. I mean, I, I was busy, maybe even I did it, but I'm still busy. I don't have much resources to sit and talk through. I give all that attention. So my overall observation of my studies when I was looking at in the ethnographic studies, the same doctor, when they're talking to a patient, right, there's always a categorization which we all do. I mean, not just doctors, we all do this. We just categorize people. We constantly have our own certain perceptions, how to talk, how to navigate, right? We Based on social markers, like how we dress, how we talk, all this. And this is exactly what doctors are also doing. I mean, I'm not blaming them in any way. But then the moment when they divide their care or the attention which they give based on the social markers, from because of this larger socioeconomic or caste or gender, all these factors playing out, that's the moment for me to reflect back and think through, wait, if I'm a person with power, that is usually the healthcare professionals, I would want them, am I doing injustice? Or like, am I being unfair for a certain group of community or a certain group of people? Because, uh, I mean, I may not basically think through at that moment, but what I do want as a researcher, or that's what I'm heading towards is making them reflect stop and think how we are socialized, how our hidden curriculum plays out within the hospital settings, and also how we as humans generally do this. The prejudice and stereotyping certainly play out. Like even myself, I'm sure I would be having all this. But what I'm do, asking for myself as a researcher doing this work and also people in power is about, okay, let's stop and think how we are socialized, how this power asymmetry is very part and parcel of medicine, and how that also plays a huge role in our interactions with patients and how it could discriminate people who are much more marginalized and vulnerable group of people. So that's what I would try to head towards and make the doctors think through. I'm not prescribe like it's not prescriptive hey you need to behave like this like this in this this context and that's the reason the social norms play a huge role the habitus play a huge role right so and in my field work many of the patients actually especially people from you know patients from government hospital they were having great empathy for doctors actually they were much more generous with the interpretation of the doctors but at the same time they are do acknowledge wait maybe because i am belong to this this and this you know um, marginalized community of group or individuals they are behaving but i still acknowledge they're doing service you know there is this um, altruistic uh, value of doctors who are in especially in the public hospitals the patients do acknowledge that the the problem i feel is how much do we want the doctors to be good person? Like, it's not just good doctor, we also want them to be a good person. It's interesting, um, like ethics teaching is also something around that. I mean, when we mean good doctors, we are trying to cater towards, we need to be a good person or good, I mean, that's a big ask, of course, right? Um, so I think being aware of how disrespectful experiences are experienced by marginalized community or individual uh, community members or the individuals i think that's something is a starter that means being sensitive to the subjective experiences of people who have been at the receiving end for so many so many years which continues for various different reasons right so i so i feel people with power and people with privilege 
should be aware that subjective experiences of people who are marginalized and and then start with questioning how we navigate this intersubjective space. And th- that's what I would head towards, yeah. So you've already mentioned education and who we want doctors to be. So I think this is a fascinating question that I struggle with, which is, and I know many of our listeners do too, one of the things bioethics face and bioethicists face when we're teaching medical students isn't actually the medical students themselves. It's the medical program saying, why does ethics matter? Or they might know why ethics matter, um, but why should we spend time teaching ethics when they could be learning about biological process X, Y, Z? So when you're speaking about the importance of teaching reflexivity, of teaching respect for patients, and starting in the medical school, and so you and and your co-author sort of make this argument in the paper, how would you answer the administrator about how you balance and and why this is something that should be on the curriculum um, and what this means for medical students? This has been like even... (laughs) For a very long time, I, I keep thinking about this ethics teaching. Does it make us um, ethically better humans, <laughs> right? I mean, of course, there there was some studies, right, in 2010 or something or 13. I'm not sure. There was a huge study which said that moral philosophers not necessarily are ethical. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's a lot of history of moral philosophers behaving badly. Exactly. So, So, I mean, of course, giving this context and the larger things, but still I do value, um, maybe I believe, maybe I want my job to, (laughs) right? (laughs) But no, on serious note, I, I do think that ethics teaching is much more for making us reflect, even as facilitators. I mean, rather than I would see teachers, I would see much more as a facilitators to think through, hey, these are the ethical theories, but then it's not about like a shopping thing, right? Okay, you. I mean, of course we give these different, different, the knowledge or the way, we, it's a toolkit kind of, of course, when we are teaching. But then is it enough is something which I also keep thinking, is that, is that what part of bioethics teaching or the larger ethics teaching is for? Um, or sometimes I do wonder, is it, are we trying to make, going back to the other question, which was like, you know, good doctors are good human beings. That means we are focusing on virtuous or, you know, certain characteristic building. If that is the case, then we need to think through very differently of our ethics curriculum or the teaching methods, right? I mean, the way, so for me as a person, the way I would see based on my own research work is much more about Um, making students reflect their own ethical commitments, their own ethical positionality, or like what values. And it is, we all keep learning and unlearning over the years. And the students, first year students, especially um, let's say um, medical students will have a different kind of um, uh, ethical vocabulary or the ethical concepts at their hand. Uh, And it is of course influenced by their own religious values, beliefs, or uh, the social context where they come from, the histories which they come from, right? Like of course, even the way I would see even myself. But the ethical training, of course, is for the way we reason, like why this decision or that. But I think it's not just enough. It should also push our boundaries to become much more reflective of our commitments, again, to reemphasize that and also to question um, 
we have uncertainty. Like we constantly, you know, grapple with this uncertainty and the larger society we live in is also ideologically, we have to reflect critically about the current ideology and value system which we live in and we navigate this. So I would see the ethics teaching or bioethics teaching, especially when we are engaging with technology, um, you know, medicine at intersections would help myself and students to see how best we can we um, navigate these ethical values or conundrums sometimes when we end up with and um, just stop and reflect and then live as best uh, with plurality and be nice i mean i know i'm not sure whether that's the right word to be yeah like to be respectful with the plurality of values but at the same time be aware and comfortable with the ethical commitments which one has to so with an eye of, of wrapping up, you mentioned a few of the things that you're working on, but I was hoping you could just tell us what we can expect for you and, and what papers um, we'll be reading from you soon. Great, thank you. So for the last four years, I have been working on a paper, which is um, on micro inequities. The moment I finished my paper on moral significance of micro inequities, uh, which is basically ethnographic work, which I did in India. After that, whenever I did um, go and present my work, with philosophers, applied philosophers especially, they did ask me a lot of times why it's important, why it matters. So I have written a paper now, I have submitted to a journal which has been taking forever. It has went for many iterations with many other journals, uh, but let's see how that goes. So that's something which I'm looking forward, hopefully it'll come out soon. So that's basically little acts of disrespect, why it matters to healthcare ethics. That's something which I'm trying to work on. But other than my current papers, which is this, which is like a pet project for a while it has been, is my work on ethics of belonging, which is based on my postdoctoral project, which I did in Zurich, um, where I looked at immigrants' healthcare experiences, especially from South Asian, Middle Eastern, and then uh, African community members. It's very much an phenomenological work, which is very grounded within a small exploratory qualitative study. And there's something which I did focus is on how we do we understand belonging, what it, what it means to belong to a particular community, but then not just from the idea of immigrants' point of view, but it's more about how suffering plays a huge role in how we make sense of the world and how we navigate with each other and how we become ethical towards others. So the way I'm connecting is if I'm feeling sh ashamed or humiliated, like as I was talking about, which is a basically a continuation of my work, Mm, if I feel discriminated constantly, does that make me much more a good human being to another person who has been marginalized and um, uh, discriminated? So basically, as an immigrant, if I'm meeting another immigrant who has experienced a similar kind of discriminatory experiences, this suffering would help us to have a solidarity or the way we make sense of our belonging to each other and how love plays a huge role. So that is something which is a long pro. I mean, it's a huge project in itself, but that's where I'm heading towards. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I think it's really exciting and, and new ground that you're that you're going through. So good luck and looking forward to reading that. Um, I want to thank you, the listener, for listening to this podcast of the She Research Podcast. You can find the paper, uh, as I noted at the beginning, that we discussed linked in this episode's notes, along with the transcript of today's conversation. SheePod is produced by She Network and edited by Regina Botros. 
You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Radio Public, Anchor, wherever you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks again for listening. Goodbye.